Emily Riss made a special concoction of uh, tea, cinnamon, honey, lemon. It was supposed to work. All right, I need it. I might just drink that and let you just read the thing and good stuff in there, figure it out. It'd be great. So, this is good. It doesn't taste like tea. That's the best part. Oh. All right. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. You can look along. Um, it's a long passage uh, today. But it's, again, another very important passage. And uh, sort of a parenthesis in the middle of a long argument that the author is making. So we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12. So please listen carefully, as this is God's word. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is indeed your word, and we do need it. We need it because we often can't hear what you're teaching, because often we don't understand your word, because often we start to drift away without even realizing it. And in these words, you're calling us back to yourself, and back to your word, and back to knowing Christ, and back to his church. So this morning we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would press these words, these warnings, these encouragements, home in our hearts. Help us to believe 
and to put these words into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. At the start of 2014, about 15 months ago, approximately, a former Seventh-day Adventist pastor named Ryan Bell made an unusual New Year's resolution. He announced that he was going to live one year without God, thus reflecting his own loss of faith. He kept a blog documenting his journey and actually had a documentary film crew follow him around. And his notoriety began with this provocative blog post a year or so ago, and he wrote, For the next 12 months, I will live as if there is no God. I will not pray. I will not read the Bible for inspiration. I will not refer to God as the cause of things or hope that God might intervene and change my own or someone else's circumstances. In parentheses, he said, I trust that if there really is a God, that God will not be too flummoxed by my foolish experiment and allow others to suffer as a result. Well, a year went by, and at the end of this year, at the end of December, uh, Ryan Bell gave an interview to Aaron Rath of NPR. The show uh, was aired on All Things Considered. And it says, I've looked at the majority of arguments, uh, this is Ryan Bell speaking, that I've been able to find for the existence of God, and on the question of God's existence or not, I have to say I don't find there to be a convincing case in my view. I don't think God exists. I think that makes the most sense of the evidence that I have in my experience. And the best way to explain the conclusion I've come to, and conclusion is too strong a word for the provisional place that I now stand and work from, is that the intellectual and emotional energy it takes to figure out how God fits into everything is far greater than dealing with reality as it presents itself to us. Now, he says he still feels like atheism is an awkward fit, and he's uncomfortable around his former Christian friends adjusting to his new views. One of the biggest lessons he said is that people value certainty and knowing. We're uncomfortable saying that we don't know. And he thinks certainty is overrated. He says, I think before I wanted a closer relationship with God, today I just want a closer relationship with reality. Now, Ryan Bell is not the angry, uh, disillusioned stereotype that you usually see presented in stories uh, like this. He comes across as a very sincere, very likable uh, guy. He simply believes the existence of God is an extra layer of complexity that isn't necessary. Which, of course, is not surprising in the least. The whole argument, if you read everything that he wrote... Basically, I would summarize it. It says it's easier not to believe. It was hard to believe, and it's easier not to. And that would summarize his whole uh, argument. Now, there are a lot of people uh, who saw where this was going when it was first announced. And uh, the problem is, of course, us. More specifically, our sin nature. Of course, living as though God doesn't exist, is going to be easier. Because if we acknowledge God as God, it means acknowledging his authority. It means that we have to acknowledge his authority and follow it. And we have to obey. And that's hard. And it can make life more complex. 
and more difficult in some ways. But so too does denying his existence. For example, as though Ryan Bell points out, atheists in general are not amoral people. He should recognize there is a sort of a fluidity to their morality simply because there's no objective standard. There's no recognizable outside external standard that you can judge things against. So it's much more easy to justify our wrongdoing simply by saying I made a mistake. I had an error in judgment. And so you try to do what's right and you go to do your best to go to bed with a clear conscience and then you get up and do it again tomorrow. But here's the rub. This is actually a far more complicated way to live. Not because going to bed with a clear conscience isn't a good thing, and not because we shouldn't be morally praiseworthy people, but because, as the Apostle Paul says, even our best efforts, our good works, our right deeds, present a problem for us without God. Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. This is the same law, the same objective standard. The apostle later says condemns us, not because the law is bad, but because the law cannot save us. And just because it's easier not to recognize uh, the law as the source of morality, doesn't mean that God's not there. It doesn't mean we're going to escape the consequences of falling short of that law. But there's an even greater concern I have with this whole situation. Again, it comes as uh, no surprise, I would hope, as a Christian, as someone who's been saved by Jesus and had my sins forgiven through his death on the cross and resurrection, I cannot fathom the idea of living as though God does, doesn't exist. Now, I understand that people stray, that people drift away, that people let your love for the Lord grow cold. All of that, it happens to all of us now and again. But this is different. I think there's something terrifying about the idea that we could just say so easily, yeah, I'm just going to live this other way from now on. It means something else entirely. It means that the Lord you profess to know, you actually didn't know at all. And that's tragic. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that this doesn't happen all the time. I know far too many people who have either drifted away for significant periods of time or continue to walk in rebellion or have outright denied Christ who once claimed to be believers. But I think the situation's a little different because it seems so self-deceptive. You know, Ryan Bell didn't just finish his year and say, I don't believe anymore. After the fact it came out, he'd already lost his church because he denied all sorts of truths of the scriptures. He denied all sorts of doctrines of his denomination. And... This was sort of his response to what was already going on in his life. He kind of neglected to mention that part of it. And it was later his former church came out and said, wait a minute, he's not even a pastor anymore. 
He says he is, but he isn't because he's already denied all this stuff. You don't simply wake up one day and say, well, today I'm going to become an atheist. It's the result of moving along a path, a trajectory over time towards unbelief. And you don't engage in such a project because you think it's going to make you a more committed believer at the end. Instead, the results show that the experiment uh, for what it was, it's just one man justifying, getting comfortable with being able to say, I don't believe in God anymore. And it's tragic because someday he's going to meet the God he just denied. So what do we do? Well, first of all, we shouldn't make callous comments. Instead, we should pray for God to reveal himself to Ryan Bell and to people just like him. We should pray that genuine believers come into their lives. We should pray they would meet the real Jesus, the one they never knew, so that when they stand before him someday, it won't be in judgment, but it will be what being welcomed home. Perhaps you know people who have either drifted away for significant periods of time, or continue to walk in rebellion, or maybe even have outright denied Christ. People who once claimed to be believers. And if you find yourself dealing with that kind of person, or if you find yourself becoming that kind of person, then our passage this morning is written just for you. As I wrote to you earlier this week, um, it's written to people on both sides of this situation. It's written to both you and your friend. It's trying to get all of us to answer the question in light of the good news that Jesus is our great high priest. How will you respond? Are you writing him off? You just uh, don't take him seriously? Or are you actually and wisely following him? But you have to ask, why does this question come up here? Why at this point in the book of Hebrews? Why does the author stop and deal with these hard questions? Why this explanation. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look back at Hebrews 5. As we read, we'll be looking at verse 11 uh, to the end of the chapter and continue on in chapter 6 through verse 12. But I want you to look back a few verses to verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6, and then also verse 10. In both places, the name Melchizedek is mentioned. Now, last Sunday, Uh, we saw, we looked at those verses, and we saw that God has given us a sympathetic and a suffering Savior. We have a Savior who is sympathetic with our struggles with sin. He understands what it means to suffer, and he knows that God uses suffering to bring about faith and obedience in the Christian life. And the idea is that if we have a Savior who understands what we're going through, he can relate to our struggles in this life. And in the course of making that argument, the author of Hebrews relates Jesus in his ministry as great high priest to this man, Melchizedek. Now, the only place that Melchizedek appears in the Old Testament is in Genesis 14. He's the king of Salem, the forerunner city to Jerusalem. He's the high priest of God Most High, and Abraham comes before him and makes an offering before him and gives a tithe after he's won this great battle. And that's it. That's all we get. Well, he shows up one more time in Psalm 110. He just makes another 
brief appearance, and it's actually Psalm 110 that's quoted in Hebrews 5. And at the end of that passage, we're told uh, in, in Hebrews 5, verse 10, that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's a way of God's emphasizing that Jesus is the last, best, and only priest you'll ever need. Now, what you expect at this point is for the author to sort of unfold that. Explain what does it mean for Jesus to be in this order of Melchizedek. Because even if you're a good Bible student, you don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek because the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. We just don't know. And you want to know more, and you're expecting this explanation of why Jesus is called a priest according to Melchizedek. And instead, we get the passage I just read. Now, all this is to explain why the author doesn't tell us why Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He will get to that in chapter 7. But he doesn't tell us right away. Instead, we get verse 11. And he says, these people are dull of hearing. I'm not telling you because you don't get it. You don't understand. You see those words, dull of hearing. That's not a compliment. That's a verbal slap in the face. And we actually get slapped four times in this end of chapter 5. Uh, be on the lookout. There's four things here. All connected, there's a problem. He can't give them the explanation. There's a problem. First of all, he says they're dull of hearing. Second, in verse 13, he says they're unskilled in the word of righteousness. So the author of Hebrews is concerned about them being dull of hearing, and he's concerned about them being unskilled in the word of righteousness. That should cause us to scratch our heads a little bit. What does that mean? Third, in verse 14, he says, mature people have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Especially that phrase, powers of discernment, he says these people are not mature. They're unskilled. They're dull of hearing. The mature would have their powers of discernment trained, but you're not mature until you have that. So he's concerned about their dullness of hearing. He's concerned about them being unskilled in the word of righteousness. He's concerned about them because they don't have their powers of discernment trained. And then finally in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And it's clear that one of his big concerns is these people aren't going on to maturity. So it's a pretty hard warning here. He says, I'd like to explain all this great high priest in Melchizedek stuff, but it's kind of like your stupid passage. He doesn't say that. That's probably not a good thing to say. But he says, you're dull, you're unskilled, you're untrained, you're immature. Those are hard words. Now, one word of caution. I think it's possible for sincere Christians struggling with their own sins to come to a passage like this and be very discouraged. It's not the goal of the author to discourage sincere Christians struggling with sin. He's not trying to discourage you with your assurance of salvation. If you're a sincere Christian, you are struggling with sin. 
because we don't get become a Christian and get instantaneously perfected. Amen? We come into the life and we're immediately one of the difficulties, complexities of becoming, coming to Christ is you now have to battle sin. It's easier not believing because you don't have to battle sin. Just let it happen. But now you have to, so it's harder. And even godly Christians, they might see victory in a certain area of their life over sin, but then in some other area, they continue to struggle. And so then they give victory over there, and they find this area has showed back up. And, uh, and it's a struggle. And the author's not trying to discourage people who are actually in the struggle. He's concerned that people have given up, have fallen away, have stopped listening to the word of God, and he's trying to wake them up. Those people who are spiritually asleep to the word of God. So those are his concerns. He has a big issue to explain, and he says the people are dull, unskilled, untrained, immature. And so that's the message he's bringing, and he's bringing it to three distinct groups of people in the church. We're going to go through the passage fairly quickly, uh, starting with a word to the weak. Starting again, chapter 5, verse 11. Now the writer's been talking about Christ. He's our great high priest, and he remembers that this small group of Hebrew Christians are not spiritually mature, they're being persecuted, they don't understand what's going on, and so he's given them a warning to the immature. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. First off, when he says they're dull of hearing, he's not saying that they have a learning disability. He's talking about people who are too lazy to listen carefully and to think clearly and have become closed-minded about spiritual things. And because they're spiritually lazy, they've become spiritually weak, and they're considered spiritually immature. They're not ready for the deeper things of Christ and not able to distinguish good from evil on a daily basis. And there's an important spiritual principle at work among the lazy minds of this Hebrew church. And it's just as true today in this church and in every church. And the principle is this. Truth heard but not internalized or maintained will be lost to the hearer. Truth heard, but not internalized or maintained, will be lost to the hearer. Jesus spoke about this very same thing in the book of Matthew. In the great chapter, Matthew 13, that's just filled with all these parables, right in the middle he says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. 
but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And just in case you think those words don't apply to the church today, all you have to do is Google the most important books on Christianity in America, written in the last 30 years. And you will get titles like these, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. No place for truth. God and the wasteland. And dining with the devil, the evangelical church flirts with modernity. These people should have been reading and hearing God's word in order to become teachers in the church, but they weren't and they couldn't. And the church is entitled to more from them and it's entitled to more from us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we have the mind of Christ. And in Romans uh, 12, we're told, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So one of the great scandals in the church then and now is Christians without Christian minds. People who profess faith in Christ, but don't or can't think biblically. They can't apply the word of God to everyday life. So it's just a Sunday morning thing and it doesn't affect the rest of their week or the rest of their life uh, in any way, shape, or form. And he's saying, you're weak. And there's a warning there. But if that's not enough, he goes on. And we have a word to the wicked. A word to the wicked. Verses 4 through 8. These are some of the hardest words in the scriptures. It says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the author comes in with an even stronger warning now. He's told the first group of people, you're weak. But now he's speaking to the wicked and he's saying, you're in great danger. To those who have shared in the benefits of the church, who have participated in the covenant community, who have heard the truth and then fallen away, or in the case of these Hebrew Christians, have returned to Judaism. He says, having a taste of true Christianity and then rejecting it, the writer says it's the same as crucifying Christ again. 
It's the same as saying Christ's death on the cross isn't good enough. It's the same as if when Christ died and it said at the very end of his earthly life, um, it is finished. And you're walking up to the cross and said, oh no, it's not. It's not finished for me. I still have to live by works. I still have to earn God's love. What you're doing is not good enough. But Christ's work on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, is finished. The finished work of Christ is enough. In Isaiah 53, we have this great prophecy of Christ. And it says, the first verse, most important, out of the anguish of his soul, he, referring to God the Father, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he, God the Son, shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is pretty good stuff. Anyway, here it says... God the Father will see Christ and be satisfied. God the Father is satisfied with the person and work and life of Jesus. And if God the Father is satisfied with Jesus, why aren't we? We need to be satisfied with the finished work of Christ. That last song that we sang, one of the last lines was, we're satisfied with Christ. That's all we need. And to say, that's not enough. That we're not satisfied, that he didn't do enough, that he's not good enough, is to put him back up on the cross. That's what the author is saying. But the third group of people are people who are satisfied with the person and work of Jesus. And so, finally, we have a word to the wise. They have all W's today. Just worked out that way. A word to the wise, starting at verse 9. Though we speak in this way with all the warnings, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now the writer's trying now, he's moving on to encourage sort of the group that's left behind, that's remaining, that's still hanging on, that hasn't drifted away or strayed. They haven't become spiritually lazy or immature. And he's telling them, but in your case, beloved, He's sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Things like the grace of character that comes from truly knowing Christ, and a pure life and a truthful tongue, a forgiving spirit, a generous heart. And he says, keep it up. God isn't going to forget. He's not going to forget your hard work, your diligent effort. Don't get lazy about spiritual things. Don't become immature. And so now we've come to the yes, but how part. How can we become spiritually mature? What kind of hard work and diligent effort is necessary to prevent spiritual immaturity? 
What are the commitments that need to be made in order to help you grow spiritually? And I think there's a few basic habits that will help us to be Christ's disciples and enable us to grow spiritually. Now, we're all creatures of habit. Most of us get dressed the same way every morning. We brush our teeth the same way. Men who shave probably start on the same side 90% of the time. Why? Because we're creatures of habit. And once that habit's there, it's hard to change. And we do things, we don't even think about them anymore. We just do them because it's an ingrained habit. You have that muscle memory. And so you just get up in the morning and just do your stuff. And you don't even have to think about it. You know, last summer I had surgery on my right arm. And I wasn't able to use it very much. And I discovered that I had all kinds of simple habits that were impossible to change. The first time I brushed my teeth with my left hand, I could barely keep the toothbrush in my mouth. It was horrible. I looked like I had rabies or something, you know. And, uh, and oh my, Lord have mercy, shaving. It looked like I had attacked by a cat. I was so careful trying to shave with my left hand. It took like 20 minutes just to shave. Because we have these habits, we have this muscle memory that we just do. And all of a sudden you can't do it anymore and it just doesn't work. And I would sit there looking at the mirror like millions of people do this every day and they can do it and I can figure it out. And it, like, you know, it just didn't work. Now that, that's sort of a funny, almost trivial way of habits. But we have all kinds of habits and we probably have some bad habits. And bad habits, is very hard to just stop. It's very hard to have enough willpower and just say, I'm not doing that anymore. To get rid of bad habits, you have to replace them with good habits. And the Bible calls this putting off the old self and putting on the new self. It doesn't call you just to stop. You actually have to replace the bad with something that's good. We find that in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There's that mind renewal thing again. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so if you want to be like Christ, you need to develop the habits that Christ had. And there's a couple of very good habits that help you grow spiritual maturity. And the first one is you have to consider what you do by yourself. There's parts of the Christian life that it's just you. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here Jesus is telling his disciples it's critical to spend time with God. Time in God's word, my words abide in you, and time with God in prayer. He says, ask whatever you wish. If you're not giving God your time, then you're not giving God yourself. And as the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, for I seek not what is yours, 
but you. That's what God wants. He doesn't need what you have. He doesn't particularly need what you do. He just wants you. And you know that when you spend time with God and with his word and spend time with him in prayer, God's going to change you. God will bless you. Not necessarily with material things, but with uh, spiritual things like wisdom and discernment. Revelation 1 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Read it, hear it, keep it. It's not that complicated, though it's not often easy. I'll grant you that. It takes practice. So that's a first habit. Spend time with God. The second one is what you do with others. Because there's part of the Christian life that only develops in community, in the church. And here again, Jesus talks to us. John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I've picked these two habits because they demonstrate that you're a disciple of Jesus. And here Jesus says we prove that we're disciples by the love we have for each other. That's called fellowship. That's called hospitality. You have to spend time with each other and get to know each other and pray for each other and eat together. And Jesus says the world will see that we're truly his by the love that we have for each other. Francis Schaeffer once said, the, if the, the world sees a lack of love in the church, then they have the right to question whether or not Christianity is true. So these are simple disciple habits that will enable us to grow to spiritual maturity. The habits of abiding and asking and loving. Habit of Bible study and prayer. Habit of fellowship and hospitality. Or to say it another way, putting God first in the area of my time, and putting God first in the area of my relationships. See, if God's number one in your life, and in the areas of your time and relationship, uh, then you know he's number one. But if he's not number one in the area of my time, and he's not number one in the area of my relationship, he's not number one in my life. But finally, this passage is meant as an encouragement to those who have persisted in the faith. This last group of people are those who didn't drift away, who didn't stray, who haven't fallen away, who aren't denying Jesus. To some degree, they're hanging in there, and it's hard, and they're suffering. And so he actually changes his tone in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's saying, yes, I know those people have fallen away from Christ, but I'm writing to you because you are not them. He knows his teaching will benefit them because they're the ones who will receive it in faith. They don't need to fear the kind of failure they see in these apostate believers, those former believers, that they're living lives marked by faith and repentance. The psalmist writes in Psalm 1, God knows the ways of the righteous, and they're righteous in Christ, and they have full assurance of hope in Christ will inherit the kingdom and God doesn't, it, it tells us the very end of this uh, passage, God doesn't grant faith to some and patience to others, but true faith is a faith that comes with patience, one that relies on the Lord for the promised inheritance, the inheritance of the King, Jesus.
Lastly, I can't help but if this passage, I can't help wondering if this passage is also here for those who aren't sure where they fit. You know, I'm considering the faith. I might be a Christian. I'm not really sure. They're not necessarily weak. They haven't fallen away. They just don't know. Questioning a lot of things. They have lots of questions. Perhaps they're toying with the idea of belief. Perhaps they've been drawn here by a friend or maybe by the mystery of the scriptures or the beauty of the gospel, but haven't committed one way or the other. There's a lot of people like that. And uh, maybe you're one of them. And if so, this passage has real implications for you because here, the author of Hebrews lays out two paths, a path of belief and a path of unbelief. And he says, don't take either lightly. And this difficult choice is not new. There's times in Christ's ministry when it seemed like he was trying to dissuade followers, trying to, you know, reminding them that what I'm calling you to isn't easy. It might mean death. Faith might mean losing everything. It might mean giving up your job for a life of serving others. Christ knew that there's a gravity to following him. And there ought to be gravity when we encourage other people to follow him, what we call evangelism. And we would do well to take it to heart because we're, we're not offering membership to a political party or a social club or a retreat center. We're offering life and death. To those who hear the gospel and reject it or receive it, insincerely, the Bible says they heap condemnation on themselves. But those who receive the gospel with faith and repentance receive an inheritance the world cannot contain. Either way, we dare not withhold the gospel from them, but we can't be careless when offering it. There's gravity, there's weight to the gospel. It's important. These are issues of life and death. The famous German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed near the end of World War II, saw a lot of people who identified as Christians in Germany during World War II fall away from the faith under the pressure of the Nazis under the Third Reich. And he wrote a book about it. And he wrote about costly grace. He said, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's costly because it will cost you your life. And it's grace because it will give you the only life, the only true life. So you need to come to the kingdom of God and knock on the front door. And Jesus says, if you do that to the one who knocks, it will be opened, and you can enter the kingdom of God. 
Some of you claim to be followers of Christ already. Then you need to remember and yearn for that grace, recognizing that it's a costly grace, but a grace that God gives generously to each of us. But it's a gift that must be asked for again and again, starting now. So go ahead and do that. Some of you need to ask for the grace to enter. Some of you need to ask for the grace to abide. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. We come to you this morning lacking the spiritual discernment we need. We come to you this morning needing your word, but are often too distracted to read it. We come to you this morning needing fellowship, needing hospitality, needing the church, and yet we're often too busy for each other. Oh Lord, convict us of our petty sins. Open our eyes that we might see our Savior. Thank you that you have given him to us as our true king and our perfect prophet and our great high priest. Drive these truths deep into our hearts and make our hearts believe, no matter what, that Jesus is better. Amen. Amen. Receive God's word as the benediction. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God bless you. We'll see you next week.